great to see you guys, all of Ranch. And we are here on Memorial Day weekend, one of those times you're ready for some barbecuing, ready for some hanging out, ready for the sunny days and be- no sunny days, but we're ready for the beach. And uh, we're to, but we also want to start today off right with the um, with just the understanding that we celebrate Memorial Day because we remember that there are so many people who have gone before us, who've given their lives as fellow citizens in the United States, that we can have the freedoms that we have. And remember that people in this room today, we can celebrate and live out those freedoms and be responsible for those freedoms because there have been people who are willing to give the greatest cost. So what we're going to do today is we're just take a first, right at the beginning here, a minute of just just silence and remembrance, and I'm going to just uh, pray and thank our Lord for, for those uh, men and women who uh, gave their life in armed service for our country. So would you, would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a minute. Father, we do. We thank you as we remember and think about the cemeteries that dot our country from Arlington all the way out here to Riverside and beyond, God, where men and women have been laid to rest after having given their lives in military service. Lord, some of them killed in active duty. Some of them have lived long after the day, but were willing to give that sacrifice. God, some of those churchyards on the East Coast where um, are the, the founders and the revolutionary, um, the revolutionary army sits, God, for others who sit in, in grave sites across the world from the Civil War, uh, across America from the Civil War, across the world from World War II and World War I. God, all of these different wars, whether it be Vietnam or even the Iraq War, God, they, they've been aimed to protect our freedoms. They've been aimed to help us be able to celebrate you, Lord, in a freedom so that we don't have to fear repercussions from our government. We don't have to fear repercussions from the world, but we can trust and walk in you. God, we thank you today for those men and women who gave their lives. We thank you today and lift up those families who are, who are mourning the loss of loved ones and who are remembering in this time those who um, went before them in military service, be it parents, grandparents, or children even. We ask that you would be with them in comfort and give them strength. God, be with us as we celebrate, remember, and exercise our freedoms this day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to see you guys. We've been doing a series here called Simple Faith, and we've been examining a conversation about how in the, throughout the history and throughout time, we have a tendency to complicate Christianity. We have a tendency to get it to a place where it can be misunderstood, in fact, wrongly stereotyped in a way. And, and it's interesting, the stereotypes are one of those things right now that, that honestly, I'm going to be very, stereo, I'm going to stereotype our culture for a second. Um, we're kind of against stereotypes. In fact, what used to be, Latin, when I I was growing up was funny has now become considered vulgar and cruel and wrong, even down to the point of accents to the where in the last couple of services where I was kind of, I tell the story, I tell it with trepidation. I kind of a little uh, fearful of it, to be quite honest, and because of the where our culture's at. See, when I was growing up, I lived here in Corona, and uh, in Corona, it was just, it was a fairly um, kind of even keel, normal existence, and the one thing we knew was you didn't drive to Lake Elsinore to go anywhere like we do today now because of traffic, right? We got to go that way. Uh, we would always go to Orange County. We'd go to Riverside out into the city. And occasionally, it was back when San Bernardino would have some, they had some pretty cool malls and stuff. So my family and I would pack in, we'd get going. And that was about a half hour drive to get out to San Bernardino, all the way out there near the 10 and 
We would gather in the car, and I've got two sisters, and invariably I would be stuck in the middle. And you remember when the cars had those big humps in the middle right there? So you'd sit in there, and as a boy, you had to sit there, and so your legs were spread out, and it would annoy my sisters to death, so I'd spread them out further. And so just to, just to bug them, and so eventually they'd be punching, yelling, and screaming, or we'd be doing something in the back. My dad would be like, stop it, you're going to get the car pulled over, and blah, blah, blah. And so he would try that first, and he would switch gears. He'd be like, okay, i got to figure out some way to entertain these kids. They're not enjoying my KNX radio station that he always had on. And so we would get into these, uh, he would start talking to us and be like, listen to you guys, you need to stop back there. Now remember, this is the time of Cheech and Chong. So this is like um, kind of funny comedy. And so we thought it was funny coming from my dad who's extremely serious. And he would be doing this thing, he'd be talking to us like this with this accent. And then suddenly he would stop right when we got over, the high, over that edge of where you're dropping down to San Bernardino. And I was like, Dad, do that funny accent. He's like, stop. We're in San Bernardino. You do not mess around here like that. You will get a shot. This will be, and all these stereotypes come out of San Bernardino. Little, I know people who grew up in San Bernardino, they said, that's not a stereotype. That was just truth. And, and, the, and, and so it's interesting because I'm growing up, I never understood why is that wrong? Why is that offensive? Why is that, what's going on there? Until one day we're sitting in Yosemite with my kids and all of those Tour America RVs pull in. You know what I'm talking about? They're like these standard cut, the RVs that you rent somewhere and they pull in and they're all around us. I'm like, what is going on? It's like we got invaded by Tour America. This is strange. So I walk up and say hi to some guy while I'm washing dishes. He's like, oh, how you doing, mate? It's good to see you. I'm like, oh, you're Australian. He's like, yes. I am. Another guy was like, I'm an Englishman. I come from Saxony. And he's like, all this stuff. I'm like, this is so cool. I love like when I get to talk to people with an English accent. And the next thing I know, I'm like, kids, these guys are English. And so my kids are saying hi to them. And next thing I know, my boys and us, we're all sitting around the campfire and they're like, Dad, can you pass the marshmallow? And I'm like, I'm like, be quiet, they're right there. This is not funny. You're gonna get them all insulted. And I'm like, oh, I guess growing up, this is what I get, right? So the but here's what's interesting. That kind of talk, even in this intro, is dangerous because stereotypes have become what used to be in some way just true. Trust me, a lot of them are true. We are Americans, and our stereotype in other countries were vulgar, crude, and arrogant and pushy. Guys, we're vulgar, cruel, arrogant, and pushy. Trust me. I've seen us in Chinese airports. And so the, um, what happens is that these stereotypes kind of get solidified. And today we're like, those are insulting. You can't say that. So somebody who like, in the history of The Simpsons, you want to talk about a long show. They've been talking about the fact that Abu, when he showed up originally, he was the owner of the, of the Quickie Mart and the, in The Simpsons world, and he has children and all this stuff, was considered an honor to, to, Amer- to Eastern and Middle Eastern Americans. Like, this guy is a proud store owner. They didn't represent him cruelly. He was just who he was, and Bart was one causing problems. Today, they say that is a racist caricature. And so we've swung to where what used to be considered honorable has become insulting, where a girl who fo- takes a photo of herself in a prom dress that is a, chi- is a particular Chinese dress on one side is considered of cultural appropriation, and then the other side you have Chinese Americans yelling, this is awesome, that's my culture, you're celebrating, thank you. Stereotypes are confusing and stereotypes can be dangerous because when we wield them unknowingly, we can harm. But when we wield them, in some cases, they can show truths that we should pay attention to. The question is, in our stereotyping world, which I just, by the way, stereotyped a lot of people, even though I don't mean it cruelly, it's just you can't help it. And the church this morning is being stereotyped. You being at church are being stereotyped because guess what? We can't help stereotyping. And there is a stereotype the church, especially the evangelical church, 
has received. And the question is, is it the stereotype that we should have? In fact, there's been stereotypes of the church for, out hundreds and cen- for centuries and centuries and centuries all the way to the beginning. And really, one of the things we're dealing with in this book of Colossians and in this series, Simple Faith, is to rid ourselves of the question of stereotypes to say, what stereotypes should we have? Because let's be honest, we've looked at the stereotype that we're all about spiritual, super uber spirituality. We've looked at a conversation that, nope, we're about do's and don'ts. Be a good person. That's what we're here for. Don't drink that. Don't eat that. Don't do this. Don't do that. This is what our stereotypes. And we said, no, no, no. The bottom line, push all the complications away. Here's what Christianity is about. It's about following Jesus together. That's it. If you were to take everything else away, it's about following Jesus, not following some teacher, not following some pastor, not following a denomination. It's about following Jesus together. Not alone, not in your own little spiritual manner. No, it's about together. And when we said that, it brings about all this sin and all this mess because the secret of the church is this place is filled with normal, everyday human beings who've been changed and are changing. And we started in the location that everybody starts, following after our normal, natural ways. And so Paul, knowing this and talking about this, says, guys, we can't get the wrong stereotype out. We can't get this in the wrong direction. It's about following Jesus together. It's about that mystery that sums up all of life. It's he will, he'll solve all of our problems. We follow him together, and what you'll see is then there's certain things we should wear, and there's certain things we shouldn't. And Jared last week talked about the fact that some of us, we can decorate the house, but inside it can be a mess. We need to be able to willingly look inside and take off all these things that are not part of it and put on these other things. And then we'll pick up where Paul is going with this in verse 12, if you want to grab your Bibles and go there. In this letter that he's written to this church, he's trying to simplify the situation in this church. It's gotten all complicated because of a man who has come and teaching false teachings. And now there's a particular set of stereotypes we need to be careful about. And so he starts off in verse 12 with this conversation. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And I need to stop there because he tells you to do something. Put on patience. Yeah, that's what we tell our kids all the time. You know, you need to put on some patience. We don't say that. That's a weird terminology. Where did this idea putting on patience or putting on humility, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the ancient Roman idea of clothing. Now, this isn't something we normally talk about, but the ancient Roman world, clothing indicated what status you were in the society. What you wore indicated who you were. In other words, the way they like to say it is, you, what you were, who you, to be Roman was to be seen as Roman. If you were going to be, you were going to be seen. And so if you were a slave, you wore a particular set of garments. You wore a towel. You worked in the house. If you were freed, you were set free so that you did not wear chains and things like that. That wasn't the point of slavery. It wasn't in chains. It was a status position. And then you were receiving a small cap that you would put on your head called a pillus. And you would cover up the top of your head. And if you wore that cap, it looked like a bit of a beanie kind of thing. It was an indication you were a freed slave. You were a freed man. You weren't a slave like the majority of the population. You were freed and able to live a life in freedom. And you wore it as a badge of honor, walking around showing that off. Now, the other badge of honor was to wear the toga. Now, today we think of the toga as something completely different because of uh, fraternities and things. But the toga was actually worn by only Roman citizens, no one else. If you were caught wearing a toga and you were not a Roman citizen, you would have been arrested, fined, or put to death because you were imitating a Roman citizen. It was a status symbol. 
then you wore, if you had a stripe, certain stripes meant a different level, and only one person in all of Rome got to wear a purple toga, and that was the Caesar, the emperor himself. No one else got to wear a toga. No one else got to wear the purple toga. It determined your status. We do these similar kinds of things. We don't use clothing necessarily. Maybe you're not wearing brand name shoes. You're not wearing brand name pants. There's some people who get into that, like junior hires, right? It's not, oh, sorry, I'm stereotyping. The, uh, no, but there's, there, there's a case that what we need to realize is that some people, it's indicated by what car you drive. One of the ways we indicate status is where do you live? Because that tells you about what the house is worth. In some cases, you'll get into stereotypes and indicating status because of, hey, well, what do you do for a living? And we do this all the time. We do it by how many likes you have or how many friends you've got on social media. All of these are status indicators that we use in our world today. In Paul's day, it was clothing. And so what he said is, look, if you're going to be like the Romans, what you are ought to be represented by what you wear. So put off the old man and put on some new things. In fact, it makes a lot more sense why earlier Paul would indicate who you are. See, earlier in verse 11, look up in one verse, it says this, Here there is not Greek nor and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. You're not indicated by whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. You're not indicated whether you're Hispanic, Anglo, or African-American. It's not about these things. It doesn't matter about what, whether you're so, what social class, poor or rich. It doesn't matter about where you're coming from. All of this has nothing to do with who you are when you follow Jesus together. You're Christ, is what he says. Internally, you're Christ. He lives in you. He is all in all. And all of these indicators of ancient cultural divisions, he says, should be wiped clean because in Christ, as we follow him together, you are identified as Christ. And so, wear what's appropriate to who you are in your identity. Wear what's appropriate to what you are in your identity. And so he earlier said, so put to death and take off the old man. Put these things away. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Five different vices. He says all these five are idolatry. We don't live this way. That would be to worship something else. It would be follow somebody else. That's to live in your natural state. And so he says the church shouldn't be known for sexual immorality. Yet unfortunately right now it's going through quite a bit of examination of sexual immorality. A lot of affairs and a lot of junk is coming out and a lot of arguments over that very topic is occurring in the church to this day. Uh, maybe the stereotype the church has isn't being sexually immoral, but maybe it's really about having evil desires or being greedy. How many people don't go to church because they think all we do is talk about money? Money, money, money. There's a stereotype. Or how about this one when he says, no, by now, but now you must put them all away. Put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Again, another aspect that has become stereotypical of the church is people think we're judgmental. People think we're out to just smash people with our truth. Man, you are all sinners. You're going to hell. Wrath, malice, standing around with our picket signs and screaming, yell at people. Ah! Is that the stereotype that the church is supposed to have? He says, no, these are the things we take off. These are the things we set aside. Because that's not who we are. That's who we were. 
So what do we put on? He says, well, actually, what the church should look like, the stereotype of the church should be one thing, and that stereotype should be Jesus. We should be a stereotypical set of people that look like Jesus. Guys, this, and so he goes into it. He actually begins to draw out these markers, these things that we should be wearing, that we should put on, that we should choose every day, regardless of who we are in our natural state, whether we're grumpy, happy, whether we're, no matter what seven dwarf you are, in, in other words, you, you find yourself living and putting these things on on purpose because your identity is Christ. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, your identity is in following Jesus. Put on compassionate hearts and kindness. Let's just start with those two together because they, they kind of fit together. Compassion and kindness. Man, this is a stereotypical Jesus thing, isn't it? I mean, Jesus was compassionate. When, he had, when his cousin John the Baptist had died, the man who had baptized him, the man who he'd walked under and, and things and had been this prophet who foretold of his coming, had been executed by being beheaded unjustly, Jesus wanted to get away to mourn. He's like, I, don't, I need to get away from the crowds. So he goes up into this lonely place and the crowds go, there he is, and they all chase him down. And what does Jesus do? He looks at the crowd and it says he had compassion upon them as one who had, as people who were like a sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus right there indicates his depth of compassion. That's why he healed the leper and touched them. That's why he helped the blind. That's why he did the things he did because compassion and kindness motivate us to treat people like ourselves, to see them in the image of God so that it stops our cruelty. It stops our mean-spiritedness. It keeps us from being trolls on the internet and just mean-spiritedly shooting things at people and saying things that are insensitive and ah. We're called to compassion and kindness. And the church should be imbibed with a compassion that sees and acts. Be quite honest, our, our, our country is divided on how compassion works. There are, there are many out there, and again, these are stereotypes. They're not going to fit everybody, but we can't help it, right? Generalizations have truth in them. And, and what happens in some cases, I meet quite a bit of people who say, look, I see this problem in this person. They got themselves in that mess. They can get themselves out of it. That's not compassion. That's not the call of the church to go, oh, I see you're in a mess. Well, figure it out. And it's not, it's not the church to say, well, you're in that mess. Well, the government will help you. That's not the answer either. Neither of these two things, which have their beginnings in Christian compassion, are the answers in and of themselves. See, let's start with Christian compassion. What Christian compassion is, what Christ calls us to, is to see the person on the street, the pain that they're going through, to identify with them, to identify with the drug addict, to identify with the person who's got no social skills or no place in life, to identify with them so that it motivates and moves you to treat them kindly and act on their behalf. That's compassion. Compassion isn't indifferent. Compassion isn't cruel. Compassion acts and it's hard because let's be honest, we don't always know what to do. I'm the guy sitting there looking at the situation as I pull up, getting off at Ontario, and invariably there is somebody just outside of my eye shot standing on the corner. Is that not true? Holding a sign saying, need help. You know what goes through my head? That guy's probably part of one of those rings. 
You know what I'm talking about? The, 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 the panhandling rings where they gather together and they all panhandle together, pool their money so that the drug pusher can give them their drugs quicker and the drug pusher takes the money and goes home. And it's just a fast route for them to do that. Now, that's what goes through my head. And this main, it's, it, they exist in Corona that not everybody's that way. But man, it sure makes me think that immediately. And so I'm like, I'm not doing anything until I hear this little voice that's sitting behind me, namely one of my children, go, can I give him a dollar? Man, the innocence and the beauty of the compassion of a child maybe is why my jaded adult heart needs to get young again. That more like Jesus who saw them and had compassion, I still don't think the answer is just to roll down my window and throw money at a person. But why has my compassion not motivated me to think of a solution? Why has my compassion not motivated me to say, well, what will I do? Have I found out where I could send them? Can I hand them a card? Can I hand them a sack? Can I give them something? Do we have a ministry in the church maybe I can point them to so that we can together do that? And maybe our compassion would motivate us to not sit down and go to church, but be the church. And so my door is being pounded on. My phone's being rang. My email's exploding. People are going like, we've got this need in our community. We could do something. And then I just go, well, then the staff will take care of it. Our compassion moves us that we follow Jesus together. And we all go, well, what are we going to do about it? They live down the street. They sleep under our, under, under, our, under our stairs right here at the church. And guess what? They're right here. And we can't say, not in my backyard, because Jesus said, bring them in, have parties, and invite them to your house. That's the compassion of Jesus. And when the world would see that, they would go, what is that place? What is going on there? Why are they so kind to people we thought they were cruel to? Put on the stereotypical Jesus. Because when we put on kindness, guys, what happens is people repent. Do you know the scriptures doesn't say it's the wrath of God that leads to repentance? Nope. It says it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It's the fact that Jesus loved us, that he bore our sins on the cross that leads us to repentance. It's the fact that Jesus was willing to care about us and to heal us, though we were his enemies, that leads us to repentance. It is not God's justice and wrath. That's what happens after he has been kind and kind and kind, and we've insulted him and shoved him out and rejected his son and done everything we can to live our own lives. Wrath is the last thing that comes at the end of the patience, the end of the kindness, at the end of everything else. But we're to put on his kindness. We're to put on his humility. Jesus called himself humble and gentle. These are his two words that come in. Humble and meekness. Guys, humbleness, man, we need to put this on. What does it mean when a church only talks about itself? That's been a question we've been asking in the staff. Like, what happens when our social media is only like, check us out. We're awesome. Yay us. Cool us. Yeah, isn't that just a proud church? What happens if we were to say, hey, the community's doing that. Check that guy out. This thing happened over here. This is great. God is working in all kinds of places. We just want to, yeah, we're interested in letting you guys know about Jesus because that's what we're doing. We follow Jesus together, but we're going to do it humbly because nobody likes hanging out with an arrogant person. I don't know about you, but maybe I don't want to sit around somebody who only talks about themselves all the time. I went once to Boston with my family. We went to go see a, um, me and my, my wife and my friend. We went, we we're like, oh, this is a great opportunity. We're going to get to go meet this, this author who had written these books that, I had just, that had changed my mind and sh- similarly shaped the way that I thought. We sat down. We start talking to him. 
All this guy wanted to do was talk about his Yale, his Yale graduation and how he's so this and I did this and blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, thanks for talking to my buddy who goes to Harvard. He set this up so I could talk to you. You had all, I, so I asked him some questions and he starts waxing eloquent about this. And I'm like, okay, so bottom line for me, what do we do? He says, I don't know. By the way, when you're at Yale, you need to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm done. I stopped reading his books. I don't really care anymore. If a guy's going to just talk about himself, ah, what in the world do I have to do with him? And so we need to ask ourselves, if the church doesn't want, if people in the world don't want anything to do with us, is it because we're acting proud? We have the wrong stereotype going on here? Because Jesus was humble and Jesus was gentle. Gentleness is huge. Do you realize how gentle God has been to us? One of the things we always hear is, hey, you know, I'm afraid to go to church. The roof is going to fall in on my head. It hasn't yet. Because guess what? God's gentle with us. We come in with our natural messes, our garbage of sin, our arrogance, our pride, our lust, our anger, our wrath, all of this stuff. And we come in and God's gentle with us. My wife says it's one of the most attractive things in men. I mean, especially the big burly dudes, you know who you are. Like, you're like, you could have been, you're like, you could have been a seal, that kind of guy, right? We all think of seals, they're like amazing. They just crack somebody's neck with their thumb. You're like, ah. Then you hand them a baby and they're like, oh, 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 oh. (laughs) And then you see this big burly dad holding this baby going, he's my son. And they start crying and you're like, I love that guy. (laughs) Right? Why? Because there's something about the power found in these men, and yet they can be gentle. The power found in our God that can create the universe, that can put the earth into motion, that puts the stars and the galaxies and the planets everywhere, that puts nuclear force and power into one atom, and he can gently address your soul. He doesn't crush. He lifts you up. He sent his son to die to bear your sins so that you can see he loves you. He's gentle with us. And the church ought to be gentle, not cruel and harsh and strong. Dads and moms, we should be gentle with our children. Yeah, I get it, man. I understand. Children have been ingrained with the ability to press the button of every parent. Beep. I'm going to kill you. Beep. Don't do that. <laughs> And you got to find gentleness in the midst of that. And guess what? We're gonna do, if we're going to follow Jesus together, we're going to have times where we're cruel to each other, where we're harsh to each other, where we're arrogant, where we're not compassionate, we're ignorant, ignorant and indifferent and all that stuff. So what do we need? We need the last thing to carry on us, which is patience. It's no wonder Paul expands on this term. He goes like, hold on, guys. You're going to mess up all this other stuff, but at least put on patience because that means to bear with one another. Boy, do we need some of that? Because guess what, Olive Branch, when we took our Reveal Spiritual Life survey, man, we were like, great, compared to all the other churches, and then you get to one indicator of all the things we indicated about ourselves, and that was when it says, how are you doing at patience? (laughs) We're awful. We are like impatient and out of self-control. Those are the two things that we said we're not good at, and I know why. Traffic. You think, and I'm not kidding, right? I mean, we'll, we'll beat up our next door neighbor to get five feet ahead of them. We're just like, get out of the house before they do. Get in front of that person. I know there's a passing lane, but I don't care. Beep, beep, beep. Man, we're just, we're like the angriest drivers on the planet around here. 
That's because we're stuck in traffic, all trying to get in the same place. Ah, I'm going to kill that person. But you realize we're all going to the same place. Bear with each other. Take, take a chill pill. Calm down. If you have a complaint against each other, forgive each other. She cut you off. It's okay. Take a breath. You'll get there. Because guess what? When we let all that tension build up, and all of you feel it right now, you're like right in your shoulders, right? You're ready to go out. We're going to get to the picnic, and we're going to be like at the picnic yelling at each other because somebody's beating us on the, on the little gunny sackers. We're like, you can't do that. And it's because we're impatient. We're done. We're tired. We've been worn out by the traffic. And we come to church, and it's like, get in, get out, go, go, go. We're just impatient. And what we need to be is the people who bear with each other, who are calm with each other, who are gentle with each other, who are able to step back and when there's a complaint, forgive each other because Jesus forgave us. And what he says very clearly is if we're going to follow Jesus together, then the forgiveness of Jesus ought to exude this place. We ought to be all over forgiving and patience with each other and able to live in a world of patience so we're all a mess and we show it at times. It's no wonder then that we need to, above all, have on love. Now, clearly love is not sentimentality. Let me just clarify love for us quickly. Love is self-sacrifice for the other even if you get nothing back. Love is self-sacrifice for their good even if they don't think it's the good. It is not love to be sentimental towards someone. That's not love. Sentimentality actually falls into people-pleasing, which is not love. And when somebody tells you, if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me, they're not telling you what love is. They're telling you what conformity is. Guess what? Love exists in disagreement particularly. Me and my wife don't agree upon everything, but we love each other. Sometimes that makes that love kind of spicy and fun because we get in a little bit of heat and it helps us see the differences. Guess what? I don't want to be married to me. I want to be married to her. To have conformity in a family isn't love. When somebody looks at you and says, you got to accept me as I am, and you're like, I do accept you as you are. I disagree with this, though. Well, you don't love me. That's just not true. What they're asking is is a totalitarian form of sentimentality. And we've lived under that, and that's not the biblical form of love. The biblical form of love is to sit with your children and say, I don't care if you end up in jail. I don't care if you end up where you end up. I will never stop loving you. I always care about you. I will always put you in a position where I want the best for you. Even if I think the best for you is different from the path you took, I will always love you. I will always correct you. I'll get you out of the street when the car is coming. Though you throw a fit at me, I will love you. And I will never stop loving you. That's what God did with us. He disagreed with us constantly because we were his enemy. We were sinners. We were fighting against him, and yet he loved us. He died on the cross for us, that we would be changed. It was his kindness and his love that brought us to repentance, and that's what the church should look like. This is the stereotype we should have, a stereotypical people called Jesus. How does that exist amongst us with all our sin and all of our mess? He says that needs to happen in a world of peace. You see, what he says is that this environment of peace that exists amongst us comes from one thing. It comes from us knowing the peace of Christ. So he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, plural, and to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. This is not the peace like, I have the shalom of God, I'm so at peace inside. That's not the peace he's talking about. He's literally talking about the peace that you and I have through him with God. You see, you don't have peace 
peace with God if you have sin in your life or the sin hasn't been dealt with by Jesus because that sin stands between you and God. But when Jesus dies on the cross and bears your sin and you receive that, that sin is removed and you have access to God. You're at peace with him. You're no longer his enemy. You're his child. And he says, that's the peace of Christ. Let that rule in our hearts. To know that when we're together, we're able to connect with each other out of peace and love for one another. Let me put it in another way. As he says in the book of Romans, when he's dealing with the differences, not over sin, but over just differences in the way we worship, maybe differences in the way we honor God in our lives, and the differences we, in the way we approach our um, devotion to Jesus and approach our love. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And notice this, he says, why? Because God has welcomed him. That's the peace of Christ. Why should we be able to have debates over Calvinism and Arminianism? Why should we be able to have debates over who gets to be a pastor and who gets to be, whether where women should be in ministry or whether or not we should have this idea of, of, of the NIV or the ESV or purple carpet or green carpet, whatever the church has argued over, the kinds of worship, all that stuff. We should be able to have it in, in, in community and calmness because God's welcomed them. Let me, let me give you a simple illustration to show you what, what I mean. Before I brought my boys to church last night, um, they had to clean up an upstairs room that they kind of messed up. And I said, guys, listen up. You got five minutes to clean this room up. I set a timer and I'm going to start this timer and this room better be clean or you're not going to get to watch the video that you're looking forward to watching. And they were like, hmm. So I pressed the timer and I walked downstairs. What do I hear happen upstairs? They start yelling at each other. You get that. No, I didn't get that. It's not my fault. You picked that up. I had to come back upstairs and say, guys, guys, listen to me. I'm the enemy. You're on the same team. If you don't figure out how to care about each other, you're fighting the wrong person and you're not going to get it done. And I walked downstairs. Crossroads is not our enemy, folks. Sandals is not our enemy. New Beginnings is not our enemy. North Point is not our enemy. Guys, these other churches in town are not our enemy. We are not in competition with them. This is not a war against churches. We got the wrong enemy if we're picking a fight with each other. We have all been welcomed by God. How can we unite as churches in order to reach 200,000 people in our valley who don't don the door of a church every Sunday morning? Hundreds of thousands of lives that are going to go to hell if they don't receive Jesus, who is a free gift given to them. And we want to pick a fight about who's worshiping and how are they preaching and whether they use that Bible, that Bible. You have to have an environment of Christ's peace. And when that happens, you'll see the stereotype of Jesus arise as we put on love and compassion, as we put on patience, as we put on gentleness and humility, and as we all follow Jesus together. And that's Paul's point as he gets in. He's like, I don't want this divided up. I don't want this stuff. I want you guys to be united. I want you guys to have your look like Jesus. Well, does that mean we, we, we ignore sin and we do it? No, 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 no. Not only should we look like Jesus and act like Jesus, we need to speak like Jesus. Let Jesus talk be our talk. We want to be stereotypically Jesus. When I follow Jesus, I want to follow Jesus' words as much as I want to say Jesus' words. And so we need to let his words come out. That's what he gets into next. He says, so let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If we were to take a look at your spiritual bank account, how much of the word of Christ is dwelling there? 
And how much credit do we take out of the pastor or our podcasts or somewhere else? Are we investing the word of Christ into our souls? Do you know the words of Jesus? Do you know his teachings? Do you understand the teachings that have come from the apostles? Have we got these in? Do we see how he's interpreted the Old Testament? Do we take this stuff in, let it saturate our lives? Because the church ought to be a place that it's saturated with the word. Not just saying it. But it comes through our lives. It comes through our compassion. It comes through our care. It, it should pervade and invade our souls when we're in our homes, our small groups, in our hangouts, in our, in our workplaces, in, in our cars while we're driving. I mean, I don't, we've got to be the kind of people who are radically different in our schools. As the Word of God pervades and comes off of our lips, Jesus constantly spoke, it is, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus was unafraid to speak the word. We should be unafraid to speak it. In fact, he says it should dwell in us so richly. We teach and admonish, encourage one another in all of its wisdom. We should sing it in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Bring it all on. We don't have to just have spiritual songs or only hymns or only, only actually, I'm arguing to bring Gregorian chant back in, but uh, that's just my idea. That'd be awesome. Anyway, <clears throat> but with thankfulness in your heart. Guys, we should be a place of thanksgiving, a full of prayer and praying the word of God. Do you know the fastest way to grow in your spiritual life is just to read the word of God over and over and over. All the studies we've done throughout all the history, the fastest way to grow spiritually is just to read the word of God and think about it. That's it. I can tell you to do it every day, but I don't want to form a rule. I want to tell you to do it as often as you can when you get a chance. And it comes into your mind. What we're going to do this summer is give you an opportunity so that when you're on your vacation, you don't go like, oh, I forgot about Jesus. No, we want you guys to be able to take with you a little devotional that will get you through Matthew and Mark and, and enable you to read the teachings of Jesus this summer for eight weeks. Just a small challenge with a little question. Something we'll provide for you guys just so we can get out there and, and live out Christ and love Christ and share Christ wherever we go over our summer, so that we're, we're letting his words dwell in us and come out of us and his gentleness. We want to be stereotypical Jesuses. I think what's beautiful about that picture is that it ends up being in everything that we do then. So he says, whatever you do, then, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever we do, whether we go to work, whether we drive on the freeways, whether we mow our lawns, whether we're at our barbecues, whether we're at the picnic after third service, whatever we do, we do it so that we can take Jesus' stamp of approval and go, approved by Jesus. The FDA has its little stamp of approval. The USDA has its little stamp of approval. In other words, it would be in the name of the FDA, we declare this safe. In the name of the USDA, we say this is good. And what Jesus is saying is that that church so like me. That action is so like me. I stamp it with my name. That's the life we're to live. To be stereotypically Jesus. Because what we're doing is not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. It's a simply following Jesus together, following his words together, following his way together. So what we do is we learn to love Christ more and we take off those things that aren't like Jesus. 
We learn to live Christ better in our community by putting on the very things that look like Jesus. And then we learn to share Christ better by knowing and speaking his words. And we do that wherever we go. So that in the end, yeah, we look like Jesus. Notice what happened in the book of Acts. In this city called Antioch, where it was a massive amount of Gentiles for the first time, non-Jewish people would come to know Jesus. Uh, the, the apostles came down and started teaching. And a whole year, these men met with the church and taught a great many people. And then it says this, and in Antioch, the disciples were called, were first called Christians. That word Christian is not something we be, should be ashamed of. It actually means little Christ. And what he's saying is that there they were first called little Christs. Not that they called themselves little Christs, but the world surrounding them, the people around them looked at them and said, wow, those people are like little Jesuses. Those people are like Jesus. I would hope that the world around us over the next years and over the, over the next days would look at our children, would look at our youth, would look at us, would look at the generations regardless of who they are, and they would say, man, they follow Jesus and they look like Jesus. Those people, they're Christians. So I want to challenge us to not get too complicated here. Let's follow Jesus together. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Oh Lord, there's so many pieces that we could be looking at and so many things that we could be dealing with. But we just simply want to follow after you. We want to know you. We want to say the things that you say. We want to do the things that you did. And we want to care about people the way that you cared about them. God, we want, we want your son to pervade us completely, Father. Would you help us to set aside those things that we're wearing that have nothing to do with Jesus? Would you help us to put on intentionally those compassion and that humility and all those pieces? And God, so that we could just be little Christs. God, we ask for your grace in this to help us because we can't do it perfectly. But you will still work through us. We know that and we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.